1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, as ever, the man with the voice for blogging and the face for radio, Mark Bigney. And with me, as always, is my father's favorite son, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Great, Mark. How are you this week? Uh, I'm doing all right. I'm catching up on past work. It seems like there was this mountain of stuff in this side hobby project slash non-job that we've taken on that just kept mounting, but...
2: Hey, I go to work for
1: relaxation. (laughs) 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 It's like, whoa. After a long day, nothing takes the edge off like stocking shelves. Exactly. Something nice and low impact. So this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then finally, we're going to talk about our feature game this week, which is Ginkopolis, because as ever, we are a slave to the hotness, and we will be reviewing an 11-year-old game. So, Walker, what did you play last week?
2: Mark, we got to play Quest for Eldorado. This is from Reiner Knizia and put out by Ravensburger. At least this edition that we played was put out by Ravensburger. Yes, it was. And it is a fantastic deck building racing game where you're trying to get through different terrain types with the cards you happen to have in hand, planning your route. Uh, You can go in different directions because there's just sort of like, you know, three gems you have to collect, you know, sort of splayed out through the whole map. So you get to pick your own route. This time we almost all picked the same route. It was very close but c mark I felt as it all came down to the professor. yeah yeah right the professor decided who was going to win. They didn't want a shared victory right they, <laughs> wa- they wanted all of the glory to themselves. They wanted to say well if you know if it goes the next round then you know the victory could be anybody's you know the, anyone could get the glory but this will show that I helped everyone throughout the whole game and particularly won
1: this game. Uh, This was a torch-heavy map, and so yes, the Professor was a superstar. As everyone knows, you go into academia for the glory. Exactly. For the fame, for the groupies, the adulation, the constant attention from the press. Some people thrive on it. I couldn't hack it. That's why I had to get out of the, the academia game. It's a lot of pressure, Merc. It's a huge amount of pressure. It is. The anonymity of professional acting was much better for me. At any rate, you're right. It was extremely close. It had the features of good race games, namely Come From Behind, Clever Turns, The ability to know when to push, know when to hold a little bit back, despite the fact that it doesn't rely on some of the more mechanical elements of race games, namely like managing an engine or managing a turn or a curve or what have you, or wear or degradation of various components, it nonetheless has a lot of that same ebb and flow. And we played specifically The Golden Temples, which is the second expansion. There's a bit of confusion now because there are now two editions of The Quest for Eldorado. one of which, and really you're spoiled for choice, because one of which is illustrated by friends, Vowinkel, and the other is illustrated by Vincent Dutré. And if you had to ask me who are the two best Euro illustrators in the market, I'd probably come up with them in a list of a top five, possibly even a top three. And the newer edition does not have the golden temples available to it, which is a shame because it's my preferred way to play the quest for El Dorado. There's an expansion already out that is only available for the Ventsantlokae the version. There's another expansion coming out that's only going to be for the Ventsantlokae version. Sooner or later, I'm inevitably going to convert. It's 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 a, it's a matter of inevitability. It's in the wind. Yeah, it, it 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 will be done. I just don't know when.
2: And this game is great because it does deck building in in sort of a different way, like. All of the cards are splayed out there. You know, all the cards that are in the game, you have a set one set ones that you're allowed to choose from, but the moment one of those empties, which happens very often because there's only three cards per pile, you get to pick any card that you want from the whole game. And then that particular pile now comes into the, the offered ones. So once again, he does things just a little bit different and a little bit better.
1: Yeah, Reiner Kondizia's version of deck building is unsurprisingly incredibly clean, incredibly streamlined, and very, very effective at the purpose for what it is. is. I have a bias towards deck builders where you never buy currency. And effectively, you can buy currency in the Quest for Eldorado, but it's not really currency because it also helps you move around the map. So just the way currency works in the Quest for Eldorado is fascinating. And I think it's just the right length and even then, you can there are a whole bunch of different maps that you can choose from. And the different maps, in turn, influence what are good card buys. I mean, yeah, there's not 50 million different action cards like you're going to find in Dominion, but the relative strength of different action cards can be subtly different based on what stage you are in the race, what position on the map you happen to be in the race, and what map you're using in the first place. And so, as as you mentioned, the professor, who is very, very heavy on torches, was very useful in this particular map because it was very torch-heavy. And I, I've i enjoyed every outing of the Quest for Alvarado, but the Golden Temples is by far my favorite way to play because it leads to precisely what you said. You can split off, and it feels less linear. It feels like you, the, the, the game is more open, even when as was the case in this game, we mostly were getting in each other's way. <laughs> but that just increased the player interaction and the desire of people to be play the temple be like, hmm, I happen to be standing at the bottleneck here. I think I'll slow down for a bit. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, that was awfully tiring. <laughs> I, I shall I shall swoon onto my chaise lounge. <laughs> and that was Quest for El Dorado. On the topic of race games, I got to try Heat, Pedal to the Metal. And I found it Solid and enjoyable. I, I, nothing to write home about. It's not going to change my view entirely about how racing games ought to work, but it nonetheless managed to instantiate some of the things that I like about racing games. Like, for example, you're going to have the ebb and flow of relatively slow turns going around corners. And unlike a lot of other race games, like, for example, that, that seek to model cars specifically, like Formula Day, you then get to really floor it and go real far. So it did, you did have these lovely bits of, you know, very carefully going around a very, very steep corner and then flooring it and just shooting off down the lane. I feel like a lot of other race games, they throttle your ability to accelerate or decelerate so you feel like you're slowing down forever or you're accelerating forever, which is not terribly, terribly satisfying. So one of the other things that heat pedal to the metal does is that it's kind of sort of almost trying to do push your luck in that as you generate heat, it's the one form of damage. If you shift too aggressively, take heat. If you go through a corner too quickly, you take heat. If you play some cards that make you go too fast, take heat. Whatever. And that that's a streamlining that I appreciate. Because, again, calling back to Formula Day or other forms of racing games with damage, they tend to be like, you know, four or five different time kinds, and tracking the different types are weird, and then you just end up taking a lot of damage for a long time with nothing happening, and then all of a sudden you're riding a jalopy, and any damage will cause you to be destroyed at any rate. And these heat cards basically gum up your deck. It, it works like a deck builder, but you're not really purchasing many cards. You're just adding damage to your to your uh, deck in the form of heat. And there's a very small number of ways that you can get heat out. On top of that, there's a whole bunch of different modules. You can draft advanced cards. You can decide what level of advanced cards you want to play with. There's a whole bunch of different tracks. There's a whole bunch of different weather. As a package, it's very impressive. The other thing that it does, which, most race, games are, uh, which race games must do and seldom do which Quest for Alvarado does, is that it is reasonably short. You know, you're going to play a couple, two to three laps, depending on the map you're taking, and you're going to be out in about an hour, even with a large player count. Uh, less than that, if everyone knows what they're doing. And so that I very much appreciate. So, you know, you get the sensation of speed, and there's there are some decisions to be had, especially in terms of card counting and hand management, but it's relatively straightforward. Like, you've got a couple of one, of ones in your hand. Are you heading into the tight corner? No? Get rid of him. Okay. So that was more or less the level of decision-making involved. I definitely want to try it, but I have read the rules. And much like Quest for El Dorado
2: and real racing, there's the main part <laughs> of racing is, uh-huh. is blocking. You know, slowing down in corners, the, yeah, keeping so, uh, the lead, cutting sure, cards off, sure. and what he doesn't have is is blocking.
1: Okay, it has a very little bit of blocking, incidentally, in that... In the game that I played, anyway, and I don't know if this is representative, there were considerable instances where I had to go much further back than my movement allowance would allow me because the lane was clogged. So there's the ability to move around cars automatically, but that, I think, just streamlines the experience. I actually found it quite refreshing that you don't really choose where you move. Your movement is automated. You just generate your movement points, and that and everything else is taken care of by very simple game systems. That I appreciate. That and subtle quality of life improvements, like there were just numbers next to every space. So if I'm on space 15 and I generate 12 points of movement, I don't need to count. I just move to the three, and we're done. That's yeah, nice. It's
2: very innovative. Never seen that before anywhere.
1: There are a lot of race games that don't do that, Walker. Gotcha. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I, look, look. Look, look. I'm, I'm, I said I'm it was just, a quality of life die improvement. Hard. You I, know I'm
2: diehard Formula Day, and anything that tries to copy it or emulate it, I, I'm just going It's to not
1: do. trying to copy it, it, it's trying to do car racing. It, it, Formula Day doesn't get to claim the monopoly over car racing for now until forever. Says you. So Gaslands just a, a Formula no, Day invitation? No, it's not a racing game. <laughs> Anyway, (laughs) I can certainly understand why a lot of people are falling head over heels in love with Heat Pedal to the Metal. I'm not going to be one of those people. I'll happily play it. And I am vaguely curious about what some of the other special cards might do. But again, if you're going to leverage the cool aspect of deck builders and have lots of special cards, I'd like to see more of them over the course of the Give It game. And in the version that we played, and again, there's lots of different ways to play. You didn't play the baby version without any special cards. I really wouldn't want to play that at all, to be frank. But in the version that we played, we basically drafted some special cards at the outset, and that's just part of your deck, and you never gain any more over the course of the game. You also play campaigns, which aren't really campaigns. It's just three races back-to-back, so I appreciate that level of, of streamlining. And it's it's an impressive package. It's by Days of Wonder. What do you expect? The components are great. The setting is great. The rules are approachable. The theme is well executed. It was long on flavor and not quite as equally long in terms of quality decision making. So as a light game, I thought it was was just fine and I'd be willing to play again. I just don't think I would suggest it. And so that was Heat, Pedal to the Metal. This is by Asker Harding-Garnerud and Daniel Skold-Peterson. Published, as I said, by Days of Wonder.
2: Our streaming this week was our feature game, Kinkopolis, and we also played Last Message. This is designed by Lee Huan and Jiung Kim. This is also some more Vincent Dutrait art, among others, with, put out by Yellow Games. So this is another sort of uh, Where's Waldo slash uh, Crime City. You have this gigantic map and... Unfortunately, this is where it breaks down, right? You have to divide roles where some people don't really get to play the game and some people are playing a different type of game
1: and so <laughs> on and so forth. Okay, so which roles – because I talked about this a few weeks ago. Exactly. Which role do you think are the ones that don't really get to play the game?
2: They're, they're That's the murderer. So they put a little glass bead mm-hmm. on the murderer they pick because they can pick anyone they want on yep. this giant sort of map and then they get to erase some squares. Yes. That's their whole job.
1: Yes. It did seem like they had – the least to do. And then there are the people who get to do the drawing, which is a very, very specialized task, but they do get a lot to do. And then there are the people who get to try to figure out who the, who the murderer is by looking at the drawings. They have a little bit more to do. So, yeah, the, the murderer definitely seems like the least fun option.
2: Yeah, so the drawer uh, writes or draws or oh, yeah, whatever they whatever write, they yeah. want to do on this nine-squared grid. They can sort of point to where it is. They can write words. They can draw pictures. Just they can't repeat the same thing over and over again. Then the murderer, let's say... In the first round, I think gets to race five or a certain yes. number, and, and then, then it descends, and then, then it goes to go four, or three. So you get about four chances to figure out who is the murderer. We didn't, we did not accomplish it, but we were very close. We we're in,
1: you know, the one inch circle for sure. I see. Who was your drawer? Who was the witness? As uh, Huey was our, our drawer. because that role we had. We I when we played it just as uh, just to recall, we played it two times back to back. Once with some kind of genius because we spotted the murder instantaneously based on their clues. And then we played with someone who I can't even really fault them for what they were trying to do in hindsight, it all made sense, but we just could not parse the clues that they were putting out. And so it was torture. And I, I say this without judgment, because if you put me in that role, the game would grind to a halt. That's not a fault of the game necessarily. If it's the case that, you know, you get enough people together, you're going to have somebody who wants to draw and presumably could be able to. So it's good It's good to hear that Huey was able to get some traction. Yeah, he was definitely, he chose to draw,
2: but I think quickly uh, was up. was not happy with his decision.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's weird. I, I literally, in addition to being confident that I wouldn't know how to handle the role, I don't know how I'd handle the specific task. Because knowing that the murderer can erase some number of fields, but you don't know which ones, I, I just wouldn't know. I think I would try to think of nine different ways to verbally express some kind of description, and then just write it out nine times. <laughs> yes, that, 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 that was the person I got as well.
2: Just, oh, really? Just, you know, using, using different words. Oh, but the,
1: oh, no, we can't. There's a time limit. It would be impossible, I think. There's a time limit to how well, long you're allowed to draw. 30 seconds. 30 seconds is not enough time to write nine descriptions of a cartoon figure. Maybe. <laughs> At any rate.
2: that is last message and like i said i don't think it's the group that would break it down i think like you said it would be not and not even the individual that would break it down because an individual might enjoy other roles but just as a certain individual in the wrong role yes and that great game would explode unfortunately
1: yes absolutely and i don't know if it explodes the right word i think it would just sort of implode into just a, sort of
2: <laughs> a pile of misery but i will play it i enjoy it it was fun and because it's not overly long, right? No. And you can choose how many rounds you play. You can just do the one round and be done with it, or you can sort of, like, you know, switch up the rounds or. However it is you very
1: need to much not the kind of deduction or induction that I enjoy whatsoever. But I do like the. I think it's a relatively good execution of a novel concept. Just so, and that is last message. We got to play Hyperborea again, and this time I will emphasize the Hyperborea light and shadow elements of it, because again, I tracked down the expansion in 2016 before it was reprinted a few years later in the domestic market. The expansion really, I think, introduces uh, some much needed flexibility in your economy, because what I love about Hyperborea, there are many things that I love about Hyperborea. we It got back to the table precisely because Dewey in particular, but a number of other people, it's like, yeah, Hyperborea. Immediately after playing it, it's like, I remember how this works again. I need to play it again soon. And so I, I figured it would be great to bring it back to the table. And the, the having to balance your supply of cubes, which power your engine and the engine itself. It's kind of like that same balance that I love so much in Oak, right? Having the right workers to be able to activate the right elements of your economy. You can have too many workers, too few cards, none of spaces, too many spaces, what have you. And the same is true of Hyperborea. If you can get your engine humming. Your your economy working at a, a a fine sheen, then everything seems to fall into place. And it may seem like you're just being lucky, but it's because you've built the proper economy. Yeah, but that that is definitely
2: a barrier to new
1: players. Like just dropping in, you got to remember True. exactly how many cubes
2: to. To draft and
1: which wow cubes there's, to draft. okay there's no there's no memory element involved because we play with a very necessary house rule where you're allowed to look into your bag at any time it's true but just rules is
2: published you're not allowed to do that that is a stupid rule we don't play with it but just remembering that that is
1: part of it right
2: well you, sure and, like, you, and you get sort of like tied into it and then you and then you realize oh crap this is my last turn and oh I only have one cube left in my bag
1: sure. But the the basic element of setting yourself up that you need five more cubes to trigger technologies when you only have one bag left, that's probably a mistake you'll make one round. Correct. And as far as just stumbling through and just activating whatever technologies are available turn by turn, you can still do that in a game of hyper just not very efficiently. The specific problem that we had, and problem is, I think, a strategic problem, not a problem of the game two games ago was where we were drowning in advancements. We had far more cubes than we knew what to do with. And so a number of our economies got lopsided, but that's only because we had been overly successful in generating more cubes. That I think is a unique problem that not many newbies are going to have. No. Yeah. It was because of the map. and Because of the map. Yeah. And this game in particular, partially by virtue of a tech that Dewey got and partially just by virtue of the different map setup, generating cubes was much harder. And so, in fact, a number of people at the table was like, wait, is this the same game? <laughs> because yes. it was just so different in terms of how the economy felt, which, again, is a tribute to its to its subtle variability. It may just seem like you get different texts off the top of the deck, and it may not seem like the territories matter, but they matter a whole heck of a lot. And that's one aspect of the map play of Hyperborea that I find continuously engaging. And again, going back to Light and Shadow, the trade-off of what to take a cube of a color, which will get you a point at the end of the game, versus a cube of white or black, which will give you, generally speaking, more economic flexibility but no point, is just delightful and it's the best element. I think after this number of requests, if we keep playing Hyperborea, I might have to start in, uh, including more of the other expansion elements in, just so people can see how unsatisfying they are. It's not that they're bad. Honestly, they're called relics. They show up, and there are a couple of other modules that don't seem particularly well-balanced. They're not bad. They're just not something that I feel the need to include, especially by virtue of the fact that some of them increase the rules grit. In a game with lots of special effects already. So I did, however find on BoardGameGeek a beautiful single-page reference that has everything on it. Nice. And so I printed up a couple copies of those. And so no longer will I have to cross-do the thing that I hate most in the world, which is at the start of the game when we are playing, of course, the Race War variant. That is what it is called, listeners. I know. It was published right around the same time that Kemet was talking about white power tiles. We're having to cross-reference the base game manual and the expansion manual during setup where people ask what powers they can choose from. So, now that there's a unified reference, I'm very, very happy. Anyway, perennial favorite of swag in the swag canon forever and always, Hyperborea, this time especially with the Light and Shadow expansion.
2: So, Mark and I got to play Ragnarok. This is put out by Gray Fox Games. Ragnaroks.
1: Ragnaroks. Yes, because that's why it's a a clever pun and not merely a reference to the end of the world. Yes, very clever. Um, so it finally showed up, <laughs> even though it funded
2: back in March of 2021. Really? That's not great. So this is the next design by the designer that did Santorini.
1: Yes, I couldn't help but notice that now he's not being referred to as Gord.
2: It, he, he is. I, I. They must have changed it. Because it is now back to Gord, maybe uh, in the rule book.
1: The front of the box. The front of the box. D- d- definitely had a full, name. full
2: human name. But, but on Board Game Geek, he just has
1: Gord. Oh, okay.
2: And this very much feels like a, another Santorini. It's just, you know, very... It's a positional abstract, Very yeah. positional abstract, but with, you know, very fancy player pieces. Yes. Very and cartoony
1: and very nicely rendered the art is
2: characters. The art is uh, the same artist, and the sort of gameplay is the same. There's a very just strict, basic uh, gameplay, and yep. then there's add the special powers. So Mark and I played just the basic game, and then Huey and I played a couple games with
1: some of the powers. I don't know why you did this to me. This, this this, this is a criticism of you as a game introducer, okay? And normally I don't like to pull this. I've been reasonably consistent about my views about any games that feature Norse mythology. I've been trying to get the hashtag no tier no sale off the ground for years. And I'm not going to be able to parse the bare elements of movement for most positional abstracts. And so why you would choose to introduce me to the base game without the special powers is absurd. I'm not going to be able to internalize anything, so might as well give me some toys to play with, and one of those toys might as well be named after Tyr. Anyway, because, move on. Because in my opinion,
2: these toys are awful. I hate the toys in oh, Santorini. I hate, really? I hate the okay. toy, and everyone will, I'm sure will jump on me this, but I'd say i I like just the basic game. Sure. And always, in, well, in Ragnarok's might be a little different. In Santorini, you just deal them out in and they had a smarter way to do it in Ragnarok's we didn't do it that way because you get to pick whatever two powers you want and then you and then the other player gets to look at the two cards that you've picked and take one I see so that's smart but when you're playing it for the first time and there are dozens and dozens of powers you know which ones do you pick so we just you picked here and Fenrir that's true in this case, but we just sort of shuffle them up and uh, problem and, solved. And, I don't know and, what this is
1: so simple. Life is so simple, Walker. I don't know why you want to complicate I'm it. Sorry.
2: So in Ragnaroks, you have this large grid of hexes. Maybe Jormungand. Maybe. <laughs> and you have. <laughs> three... okay, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> okay. Sure. <laughs> uh, for now. And you have three Vikings each, and they start across from each other. On your turn, you pick a Viking that viking can move as far as they want and then you have to summon a large sort of blocking boulder it's sort of
1: a ragnarok if a you ragnarok
2: know. it sort of hovers above the viking you just moved and then you get to move the rock just like you move the viking as far as you want along one of the six sides coming out from your viking and then it's very much a sort of hey that's my fish slash through the desert slash go type game where you're blocking off parts of the map, denying the opponent the ability to move, and then as soon as a, a walled section is a wall section is closed off and there's only one color of Viking in there, then it's settled, and then you can no longer pick that Viking to move anymore. And then once every Viking is sort of locked in place, then you just score hec- your hexes via through the desert style, and whoever has the most wins. It is a great two-player game. I think I'm tired of them trying to make these games more than two-player. <laughs>
1: is there a tacked on yeah, it's D- D-
2: six. D- yeah it's some sort of weird anyway I'm not gonna... I didn't even
1: read it I, was, I, was... <laughs> I will not even dignify exactly. this multiplayer mode it is possible that the multiplayer mode in Ragnarok might be superior to the one in Santorini because I don't know if you remember this Santorini had been published in a very very minimalist wood form prior to it being given the special powers and prior to it being published in the you know splashy plastic form and so it is possible that Ragnarok's being designed from the ground up with this mode of publishing might have a better approach to the toys as well as a better approach to the multiplayer version. I don't know. I share your skepticism, though. Easy to teach. Very interesting play. I will play it any
2: time. Happy for the purchase.
1: Ragnarok's. We also get to play another session of Undaunted Stalingrad. This is... Quite normal for the progression of the Undaunted series. The first scenario is relatively basic. Here are riflemen. This is how riflemen work. And then you gradually start introducing new units. This one gave Walker a sniper to play with. As per usual, I get a sort of myopia when playing scenarios. I'm not the kind of person who can take a step back and say, I know exactly what I would have done had I been in somebody else's shoes. I just play my role. And then at the end of the game, someone might say, how do you think I could have played this differently? And I say, I don't know. I was just doing my thing.
2: Well, that sort of shows a, I don't want to say a fault, but something that might cause a problem to me later on. is because you don't get a chance to replay it. Yes. You have to assess the map. You have to get it on right away because this is a campaign. Yeah. You mess up and do it wrong. Well, too bad for you. And I'm not sure about that. You know, because like we said, after that mission, it's like, oh, I would
1: have, I would have mind trying that a different way. Well, too bad. You screwed it up. On yeah, to the next one. and there's nothing. There's nothing stopping you from ignoring the rules, and you know, saying that every scenario is best of three or what have you. But I, I, I agree with you. We've we've commented on this before. It's the one failing we have of Undaunted Stalingrad. You do not have the same flexibility that others do. We don't find we've had we've seen a little bit more of the campaign elements. They're fine. I mean, it, some some of the card upgrades are kind of cool, but I think I would have preferred the flexibility of the different scenarios. Now. This having been said, it's it redounds to the same issue with almost any wargaming system. Pick the theater that interests you. If you really like the Eastern Front, then go go on and, and deal with it. Unless you truly despise campaigns, uh, but I'm still enjoying it because any Undaunted is good Undaunted as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but perhaps it makes me want to, uh, by virtue of my agreeing with you, I might want to intersperse our playings of Undaunted Stalingrad, perhaps with some of the new scenarios from Undaunted Reinforcements, you know, play around with some of the tanks there. I, I, I know you, you're you fond of tanks like most Canadian men of a, of a certain middle age. You uh, secret reserves of, of enthusiasm for armored vehicles. No, it's of just course. a common trait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what it is. I, I, and I'm, I, I'm not even saying it's unique to Canadians. I'm sure lots of Americans and lots of Brits and, and lots of other people in the Anglo world. I won't even get to speculate about the rest of the world. But at any rate, uh, we have... Spoken a lot about Undaunted over the course of the show. It continues to please uh, my misgivings about the campaign system notwithstanding. So that is Undaunted Stalingrad by David Thompson and Trevor Benjamin.
2: So I got to play a game put out by Greer Games. This is the same company that did uh, Nadavalier. It's called Raulha. Designed by Johannes Goopy and Theo Ribier. And this is a sort of a run-of-the-mill tile there. You have a nine- a three by three grid where you're going to draft uh, one of two tiles and then you're going to play that tile onto your grid and you're trying to make rows and columns of, of either, you know, animal tracks or trees or, or minerals or mushrooms, all sorts of different symbols. And if you get the, the right line, you're going to bring a God over and they're going to score your points. And you have this other token that's going around the map that's going to tell you what kind of tiles you're going to draw it was fine
1: <laughs> one thing I've, se- I've seen you play it on board game arena if you're gonna make a game about building churches in you know early renaissance or or, or late medieval europe i can kind of understand how you'd end up with a brown game mentioning no in particular if you're going to be making a game about creating a biosphere and drafting animals and gods and things like that, why would you make it all gray? What, 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 what normally tile games, like they don't all have to look at like sun, but you can make them as colorful as you want to be. You can, you know, it's literally your palette upon which you can imprint any sort of vistas you can imagine. And they came up with gray on gray on gray next to gray. It's rather shocking to be frank. It's true. Especially considering that the the, the previous stuff that that publisher, grrr, Games, has put out has generally been pretty colorful and appealing to look at. It's true. The Dabbler being an example, of course. So I don't, this was on Board
2: Game Arena, like you said. So I don't think I'll be picking up a physical copy, but I would happily give it a try just to see how it sort of the table presence that it has. And that was
1: Rahula. Played a couple of games of For Sale back-to-back. Once again, found ourselves in a situation with a mixed crowd of hobbyist gamers and non-hobbyist gamers. And so For Sale is an obvious candidate. Absolutely love For Sale. Late 90s auction game. I love me a lot of late 90s auction games. Just the sheer amount of charm and personality in those properties. And you have to remind everybody, look, that cardboard box will probably sell for $5,000. And they don't believe you, and then it does. The one problem that I have with for sale, and this is honestly the only trick that I've learned, because of all the the auction games I've played a lot, I think I'm probably the worst at for sale. I don't think I ever win it for sale ever. It doesn't matter what the player count is. The one trick that I have is know how to manipulate the player order in large player count games because you don't want to win auctions in in five or six player count games, generally speaking. You want to be the last person to leave the auction and then stick somebody else with the full price because you'll end up paying, you know, $3,000 for the 28 and some sucker will pay $7,000 for the 30. You've made out great if you're the one getting the 28 in that instance. So you just have to look around and figure out, hmm, how can I convince the person to my left to bid slightly more than me and get out of the right time? That's the only trick that I've learned after having played this game for over a decade. Other than that, I'm terrible at the game. However, this was also another opportunity to engage in a decades-long internecine rules debate, which I find fascinating. Do you take half your bid rounded down or half your bid rounded up when you pass? Different editions have different things. The designer himself has in public stated different things at different times, all the while maintaining that he's had a perfectly consistent position, whatever it happens to be at the moment. Which I find utterly fascinating. I think I'm going to talk about this in an episode of Bloat or SWAT Guy Lab uh, coming here because because there's a lot of echoes of this in judicial interpretation and in philosophy and a lot of other things that I find interesting and the connections therein are also fascinating. And honestly, it's 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 wonderful. We had a little bit of a of a who's on first situation at the beginning where I'm like, is this going to do? We take half our bid rounded up or half our bid rounded down? And the person's like, yeah, you you pay half your bid. Round it up. It's like, okay, so you take half your bid, round it down. It's like, no, 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 round it up. I'm like, yeah, I'm saying what you're taking. It's like, yeah, what you're giving is like, wait a minute. <laughs> <Pixed> take <it> step back. <laughs> anyway, For Sale is a, is a delightful game. Come for the property. Stay for the animals. Stay even longer for the rules debates. Stefan Dora republished many times over the years, but initially published in 1997.
2: For my last one, I got to show Mark my number one game of 2022, Woodcraft, designed by Ross Arnold and Vladimir Suchi put out by Delicious Games. In this game, you are cutting up dice to do recipe fulfillment for birdhouses and bicycles and dollhouses and any manner of things made with wood, guitars and such, and you can glue them together, you can parse different pieces of wood together, there's a... Uh, you know, wheel that spins around. So when you're taking your action, you can just take it for the sake of getting the bonus and then use other, you know, uh, like whether it's the lantern to get, use other actions. So there's a lot more to this than, than I, you know, I have to invest in all these different strategies and realize that there's a lot more to this than I initially saw.
1: So this is a Vladimir Suki. A resource manipulation game with a clever action selection mechanism and tight resource management. No, 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 not that one. No, 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 the other one. Wait, no, no, no. This is the one he's published this year.
2: I, I told him the name already.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, look, my my. I should make this perfectly clear because I realized in the past I might have not been quite transparent or explicit enough. I enjoy Vladimir Suki games. I do. I've enjoyed. I think every game of his that I've tried. My problem is I just find them interchangeable, and as a consequence, given that they tend to be medium-heavy resource manipulation games with lots of intricate little weird little rules, and not especially thematic as a general rule, and I've got nothing against games like that generally, I don't really feel the need or see the virtue in internalizing all these different rule systems when I could just play the same one over and over again. Uh, for Walker, that would probably be Woodcraft now. Previously, it probably would have been Project at Reggae, because I think before that, that was your, your favorite Sookie game. For sure. For me, my favorite Sookie game is Pulsar 2049. And so whenever I'm playing any Sookie game, I'm like, I could be playing Pulsar 2049. <laughs> this is definitely one of the Sookiest Sookies that ever did Sookie. The I feel like his wheel, though... The wheel through which you pull the actions is much more compelling than the wheel he had in Prague Cup at Regni. So I'm not going to say that they're all perfectly interchangeable. That would be a grotesque exaggeration. And after all, I've already expressed a preference for one of his games over the others. So I'd rather play Woodcraft over Prague Cup at Regni for one thing. And his, his games are all characterized by an extreme scarcity of resources and actions. But by the end of the game, you're pulling off so many combos, you're able to pull off a lot more than you thought you, you possibly could have at the beginning. I didn't quite like how the lanterns worked, especially based in conjunction with how the, the, the actions What it, it made the wheel feel strangely irrelevant because one of the bonuses you could you could get for executing one type of action was a lantern. So it's like, okay, this I could take this action, which gives me a lantern and two points and a resource besides, and I pay this lantern. I get to copy any action I want and then get the lantern back. Okay, I did that like four or five times over the course of one It felt like cheating every time I did it. And it made me feel like I was bypassing one of the more interesting parts of the game. I'm a little bit tired of order fulfillment. It does order fulfillment reasonably well. And I, I have a mild preference for order fulfillment games where getting the orders. Isn't the hard part. Whereas in Woodcraft, getting the orders is one of the hard parts. Like, it it constitutes a significant proportion of your actions at a given time. But that's a very, very, very mild quibble. It is a very well-designed game. It is one that I will happily play when put in front of my face. And it is one that I think I've played about a dozen or two dozen times before in the past five years. Understood. That is Woodcraft by Delicious Games. So those are the games we played last week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter.
2: Mark, uh, Game Brewers putting out a new game is now a Kickstarter, so if you ever want to hustle over to Kickstarter and see what's new, this is one I would definitely suggest to look at because it looks amazing. Tons of theme. You are uh, trolls that uh, use magic to imitate humans, so you infiltrate the human town and steal their babies and drop off your babies. What? And there's princesses. And are you serious? Yes,
1: yes. It sounds... This is this is a board game yes. in which you steal children. Yes, doesn't that isn't that amazing? I'm I, I'm quite I'm quite frankly speechless. I've never mark your calendar. It's going to be great. <laughs> What's it called? It's called Trolls and Princesses, <laughs> not baby no, kidnappers, it's not
2: princesses, princesses, not princes. No, you princesses. Said... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Princesses. Princesses. Are we are we stopping momentarily?
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. That is very visually striking. I know, right? I'm impressed. Game Brewer has been publishing a lot of solid titles over the course of the past few years. I've been very impressed. Yeah.
2: It's, it was like one of these instant backs
1: just because of their history and just the way it looks, man. It looks so Got some lovely screen-printed meeples as well yep. as screen-printed human children that you'll be stealing with your screen-printed trolls. Okay. Now
2: now we just have to follow through. If you don't cook and eat them, then I'm going to be upset. And that is (laughs) Trolls and Princesses by Game Brewer. Now up on Kickstarter. So... I enjoyed Witchstone. It was another Reiner Knitsy game, and I st- I've kept it just because I enjoyed it so much. It was sort of like a, like you just said, another sort of a Sookie massively combo, do this to do that, and move <laughs> much, this over here, and then yes. get these three things, and if you got those three things, then you got this thing, what lets you do this other thing? Anyway, I really enjoyed it. It's going to get an expansion called Full Moon. Looks like it adds another figure that you get to move around, and little castles, and just more stuff. Because that's what it needed, Mark. It needed more stuff.
1: More tracks, maybe?
2: More tracks. Witchstone, full moon expansion.
1: Okay. There's going to be a Nussfjord big box. Uwe Rosenberg is a marvelous Euro designer. Nussfjord wasn't one of our favorites in the grand pantheon of Uwe Rosenberg agriculture slash agri food slash agribusiness worker placement games. Well, the fact that it wasn't like his other games seemed a little fishy. You don't deserve an actual rimshot, Walker. I could edit in a rimshot. You get my sarcastic hand rimshot. All right. All right. Justified. 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 So there's going to be a big box with some new expansions. And to give credit where credit is due, the Publisher Lookout Games is going to be publishing the new expansions separately. So it's not going to be one of those things where if you want the new decks, you have to rebuy the thing. No, you can get the expansion separately. Now... As invariably is the case, whenever an Uwe Rosenberg, especially a game, especially one that is not Agricola or Caverna, gets a new expansion, all the, like, B tier, I don't mean in terms of design, but in terms of popularity, like the second the second and third tier of Uwe Rosenberg games, the fans crawl to the woodwork and say, could my game have an expansion too? Frequently, this is Glass Road and Hallertau. These are the two that frequently show up. We're big fans of Hallertau. We want more Hallertau. Could we get more Hallertau, please? Good for Nesfjord. We don't resent it. More, 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 how oh, yeah.
2: Less fish. Less fish. Mark, you and I enjoyed Gears of War. It was a, another plastic fest. Now there's going to be Gears of War, the card game. Not a lot of information. People are thinking that it might be cooperative, but from the components that I saw, I do not think that's going to be the case. I think it's going to feel a lot like Convoy as it, it talks about sort of a campaign system where where you can play the two main characters and someone plays the bad guy, but I'm pretty sure it's a a, a 1v1 two-player game is my
1: prediction. Some swag news now. We've been putting out some video content again on a pretty regular basis. If you've never checked out our YouTube page, I would encourage you to do so. You're going to find versions of our podcast there because some of our listeners do like to listen to the podcast on YouTube, and if you're one of those people listening to, to us on YouTube right now, This is something we do to facilitate your listening habits, but we also have recordings of the streams that uh, Walker, and I'm sometimes involved but seldom, uh, puts, puts up on YouTube, as well as some video reviews and some other video content. So by all means, if you've never checked it out, please do. Yeah, we have an Oak review that is out now, available to watch, and this week
2: coming we're going to have our top 10 of 2022 in video format, so please watch that and pass it around. That would be fantastic. And that is the news, and why it doesn't matter. And now, on to our main
1: review, which is Ginkopolis. Ginkopolis was designed by Javier Georges and published by Pearl Games in 2012. Javier Georges was mostly known for his co-design with Sébastien Dujardin and Arlen Orban from 2010, namely Trois. Or, as an American would say, Trois. 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 No, that's, well, that, that's if you don't know. If you're an American in the know, you say trois. Uh-huh. That, that shows that you're, you're, you're hip with the French. Uh, that design trio, by the way, reconvened in 2019 for Black Angel, which we've talked about in the podcast. We talked about trois as well. and Georges also designed in 2009 Carson City, the Western themed worker placement game, because everyone was doing worker placement in the late two, 2000 aughts, and was also responsible for one of Walker's favorite games of last year, Carnegie, which he also designed. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Geekopolis? Mark, you look to yourself and you say, what the hell do these cards do again? (laughs) Step one.
2: (laughs) Step one. Look at your hand. Get the rule book. (laughs) Because these are are just over-the-top multi-use cards, right? They do completely different things, and they even transform into other parts of the game (laughs) later on. So this is a huge barrier to 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 starting the game and learning the game you really need to the people really need to internalize all of the things they can do with these cards and they need to understand what they can turn into and what they do you know, I mean what the end game is for these cards because if they don't understand how it all works then it will make no
1: sense so what's unique to me about Kingopolis is that it was published right around the start I've been thinking a lot more about design trends and this is something we may be talking about later on the podcast. But I think uh, you know the early the early teens was really when sort of the kitchen sink euros were really coming into their own. You know, you got a little bit of tableau building, you've got a little bit of drafting, you got a little bit of tiling, you got a little bit of area majority. And those are four things that all exist in Ginkopolis. Most of them were flashes in the pen that nobody really thought about a few years later. Ginkopolis, on the other hand, has legs and it's been reprinted once after uh, people were strenuously asking for it. Secondhand copies were going for monstrously inflated prices. And I think there's a good reason for that. Ginkopolis pulls off the sort of mishmash of a whole bunch of mechanics that you've seen before far, far, far better than almost all of its peers. And with I grant you the caveat that figuring out what how interpreting the iconography, which is a bit of a daunting task, it nonetheless carries this fusion of a whole bunch of different things together really shockingly well and shockingly approachingly with a very, very good amount of flow. And in, in a very small box as well. I don't know about very small boxes. Well. It's, it's well, back what we used to call big boxes. It's true. <laughs> back in the day, boxes that size used to be called big boxes. Which is what we're
2: talking about, like a silver-line game size box. But anyway, yes, I have that as here as well. Tons of game in a little box. Sorry, I've lost my place. Sure. So let's talk about these cards, that uh, these multi-use cards. Let's. So you can play them just as the card itself. And then, so there's two types of cards. There's letter cards and there's building cards. The building cards you can play just as their suit, I guess, and you'll get you'll get, uh, resources based on the building that's out there. So if I play the 19 building card, I see what level it is or how many, uh, tokens are on it. And I'll get, if it's the red card, I'll get more resources. If it's the blue card, I'll get tiles. If it's the yellow card, I will get victory points or I can overbuild with, with the 19 card. As long as I have, you know, the tile, then I put it out and then that card becomes part of my tableau. So it doesn't go in the discard pile. Now it's going to either give me endgame scoring or trigger off of other actions. Or it could be the letter card I'm playing out by itself, in which case I only get either one of my tokens or a tile, or I could be playing a letter card with a, with a tile, and that's going to expand the map because there's these circular tokens that go around the whole board in in alphabet order, and then you're going to move out with your tiles by playing
1: those Ginkopolis is nominally about building some kind of environmentally harmonious city of the future, uh, but it is pretty darn themeless. It doesn't feel like a city builder game. The The theme doesn't carry through, except graphically. Apparently, you know, the ginkgo leaf was their symbol. Ginkgos are fast into those living fossils. You know, they were the hipster of trees. They were trees before trees were cool. And it's kind of evident when you look at them. They, they're kind of like trees that haven't figured out trees yet. Anyway, and... You're right that a lot of it is about managing your resources. There's a very small number of resources in the game. There's the actual tiles that you put out. There's your tokens that you mostly use to play out those tiles. And then there's victory points, which you might or may not be acquiring over the course of the game. If you have your engine humming, and calling an engine is a bit of an exaggeration because mostly, as you say, it's just building out a tableau of cards. But if you've got a, a pretty good tableau of cards, you'll find yourself being able to build most of the time, or at least a fair proportion of the time. And getting to that point and getting into that rhythm is one of the things that I find genuinely pleasing about Ginkopolis. You don't have to scratch and worry about how, you know, not to pick on woodcraft, but just to give an example, I enjoy woodcraft. But it's like, oh, I'm a blueberry short. Okay, how do I get the blueberry? Or it's like, I'm I'm a bit of a wood short. I need to scrabble together enough resources, and then I get to do a thing. In Ginkopolis, you're almost always able to do something. And it, it feels a little bit like beyond the sun in that way. You know, you're generating revenue nearly constantly. Will it be enough to get where you want to go maybe that's part of the challenge of the game but you don't feel like you have wasted fallow turns you no know, that's what i love
2: about when you're deciding what card to play because you're it's like a complete always a drafter choosing one card and you're passing the rest and sometimes i hate that cuz i want all of the cards Mark. <laughs> and there's so many so many reasons why you want to choose some cards and let some cards go because Either A, you want to just play out a card by itself and trigger your engine or get the resources that way, or one of your buildings is out there and you have that card and you don't want to pass it along to let someone else build on top of it, or you can just use, you have tokens as well. You get two tokens at the beginning of every game that lets you just wash your hand. So even, so if you get a couple of your own buildings in your hand, you can just wash them to the discard pile and worry about them coming up later.
1: I seldom find myself in a position because it's a it's a drafting game. Let us discuss how often we find ourselves it, it really amping up the player interaction. I very seldom care about what I'm passing to my neighbor unless it's one of my buildings that I don't want to get overbuilt. Other than that, I tend not to care. What's your experience been?
2: That's that's exactly what I was talking about. Oh. I, I look and see it's my building then either A I'm going to build on top of it or or B like I said I'm just going to wash my hand or or play it for resources or right. or do something else. Because a
1: key element of scoring points over the course of the game is primarily by building these tiles. That's mostly where it's going to be happening. The rest of the points you're going to be getting are incidental, in my experience. And so you end up with this, it, again, it doesn't look much like a city, but it's nonetheless a, a relatively interesting uh, spatially emerging board, if nothing else, where you have the outskirts that tend to be level one, maybe level two, and then towards you get towards the middle, towards the core nine tiles that started off the city. Some of them are going to be level three, level four, sometimes if you're really, really doing an intensive game, sometimes to level five, and knowing when to expand, knowing when to double down into an existing area, because the only element of game scoring that's a bit counterintuitive, and I find takes new players by surprise, is the end game scoring for the area majorities. Because at the end of the game, you, you you find districts, which are sets of orthogonally connected tiles of the same color. And whoever has the most tokens there, in other words, the most presence, who's built the most tiles, by and large, can get a relatively substantial windfall. Planning for that, especially for new players, I find can be a little bit difficult. Not in a sort of, oh, this is a terrible surprise kind of way, but just in a little bit of, it helps to have played the game once or twice before kind of way. Which is not necessarily a problem.
2: So this is another big interaction. So this is how it works. You. You place a building, and now that card enters the system. Yes. So your tokens are on that building.
1: Now that card is floating around. So I have a tile. Here, here's the thing. We can walk through it carefully because this so many people when teaching the game like, wait, how does this work? And the card flow is the thing you don't really need to internalize because it takes care of itself, which is which is kind of a genius. But so let's say I play the 19 blue onto the city. As you said, that introduces the 19 blue card into the deck. It'll show up later when there's a refresh. And very quickly, Stanley,
2: he covered the 10 red card. Exactly. So that 10 red card now goes into his tableau because he built on top of it.
1: I played the 10 red card to build the 19 blue. So the 10 red card goes into my tableau, and whatever is on there, whatever power is there, I get for the rest of the game. The 19 blue that I used as the tile, I don't know what the card is. I... Some tryhards think they need to know. I don't think they do. They really don't because anybody might get it. That's right. <laughs> it's just it's just going to enter the deck in the next reshuffle. It is, that level of disconnect again. It's really counterintuitive to a lot of players. Like so, how do I? I how do I? I have the nineteen blue tile in my hand. How do I play the nineteen blue? Where's the nineteen blue card? You don't build it with the nineteen blue card. <laughs> Building it puts the card in the system. So this this whole way that the cards cycle through is. Almost a work of genius because of how clean it is, but it's really hard to internalize. But the point is, I always try to get my players to accept that they don't need to internalize how it works. It just does. You say it's clean,
2: but there's a chance there for the game to implode. Because if you do not remember to put a construction marker on... (laughs) It's true. Because whenever you do that... You have to. Whenever you build a tile, you need to put a construction marker on it to remind you that that card has to enter the system. It's true. This is why I like to remember. This is why I always like to try to put that card off to the side immediately, sort of as like a double mm. check. Because if once if the game's flowing well and people understand what's going on and people are going through turns quickly, even if you miss one of those tokens, then the game is is broken.
1: Uh not irreparably, but but it's damaged considerably. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll grant you, you're right. I just really admire the system itself. You're right that it, it, in terms of actual gameplay, I, I, both the conceptual disconnect and the possibility for error are structural problems, but just as a system in and of itself for managing the influx of cards, it's really beautiful. And I, I, I genuinely love playing Ginkopolis. The play experience is great. I love playing it. I love teaching it. I love introducing it to new players. But I also like just thinking about how great the card flow is from an abstract perspective. It's just a really interesting quirk. And for people who like game design in and of itself, regardless of its impact, it's really clever. So I think it's worth studying on that level alone.
2: I also like the starting cards. You either you can either draft or deal out these starting cards. It's going to give you some starting resources. And it's going to give the start on your tableau, which, is, which sort of helps out teaching the game, where you can see some things already out on the table and how they sort of trigger off of other actions.
1: True. It is helpful for uh, – it's almost kind of a primer for the early card effects. Which I help, th- which I think helps offset the fact that it's daunting for new players. New players really don't know what to take. I mean, what else is new? It, it's you're playing a game for the first time, and the first thing you have to do is select your starting resources and your your starting special powers. Uh, naturally, it's going to be a little bit difficult. Now you've reached the two thirds point of the
2: game, or the. The five-eighths part of the game where the tile supply has run out for the first
1: time. Yes. And suddenly that jerk who's been hoarding tiles all game cashes them in for a billion points and that jerk laughs and laughs and that jerk's name is me. It's true.
2: So you secretly choose what tiles that you've accumulated behind your little screen so you can sell them back to the pool because once that pool empties out for the second time the game will be over. That's only one way the game can be over. One thing we forgot in our last plane was the fact that you get to see all the tiles first. Ah, yes. Very important after I've read that today. So you get to see all the tiles that are going back in the, sort of the second pool. So if you're looking for certain tiles or 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 you want to know how many blue ones are left or whatever color, you get to see so you know not to draw tiles for no reason. Not, <laughs> not, not, not that that happened or anything, but, <laughs> but you get to see these. So the tiles go back in. The other way... We haven't really talked about your resource tokens because they all you get you get to you get some from your starting cards. They go behind your screen. They are the only ones you can use, and you need to acquire the other ones from the pool and bring them behind your screen. So you have to have that
1: supply. yeah, Yeah, you have to have them available, and they're how you pay for you need you need a card which you'll have every round. The cards are free in your hand. You need the tiles, and you need the resources. Those are the two fundamental currencies of the game.
2: Yeah, I meant to go into this when, when we first talked about, uh, getting the cards into the system because that's a big part of the player interaction because you can build over someone's building. They're going to get points equal to the level that they had built. But now this is your building and you're either adding to this, these giant, this giant blue conglomerate that's happening or you're breaking it up because so now you have the whole left half because that's where you built. Right. And now that's broken off. The
1: player who got built over. They get points and they get the resources back that they used to build the thing in the first place. What they're giving up is board control. And so that trade-off is often leading to some interesting tension. At worst, at its most simplistic, it is sort of a balm to the fact that you lost your building or you lost your board presence. At its best, it leads to situations where you build a building hoping you get overbuilt – because this was just a transactional stepladder on the way to something else. You just wanted the, the the power of your tableau. You're happy to have it overbuilt. You don't really care about fighting for that area of the board anyway. And so, again, watching the board state evolve, like many good tile games, is one of the key strategy points in Ginkopolis.
2: And, like I said, keep, keeping enough resources to do that because you have to pay... Resources equal to the level, then you have to pay another resource if it's a different color, and then if it's a lower number that you're building over, you have to pay the difference in the number in points.
1: Yeah, and that can get expensive. Yeah, the building requirements are neat, just complicated enough to give it a little bit of grit, but not so daunting that people tend to forget. I mean, they'll ask you a couple times, but it's 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 not a huge deal. And that really dovetails with the tile management and deciding what to build when, and it kind of helps let the the. the <laughs> Again, it doesn't feel like a city, but it helps the city build somewhat organically. We we the examples that we kept using just randomly, whereas we kept talking about you know the blue nineteen. You don't tend to do that right off the bat. As a rule, you build you know you start with with buildings one, two, and three, and you you know you build the five, you build the seven, you build the four, you build yeah, the, they yeah kind of that, grow if up.
2: If that's the tiles that come out, see the problem with the <laughs> game we just had, sure. it was all the nineteen twenty <laughs> tiles, that were but that back to the resources that's another way the game can
1: end if one player gets all of the resources on the board that will also trigger the end of the game yes one thing that people have pointed out and i think this is a legitimate criticism it's just not one that touches me is that the screen is kind of pointless because you have everybody has the same number of total resources resources are in exactly one of three places in your bad supply publicly visible on the board publicly visible or in your hand secretly Well, everyone could just do the math if they're inclined. (laughs) Air quotes, secretly. Yes. It's just in our experience, and this is not, I'm not even going to involve. Uh, any sort of distinction between filthy casual and sweaty tryhards. We're not the kind of people who are, what's the term, uh, numerically literate. So we're not apt to slow the game down by counting stuff all the darn time. Uh, but, you know, it's a perfectly legitimate tactic for those that are inclined to do, to, to build a building and say, well, can my neighbor overbuild me? How many t- How many resources do they have in their supply? Quick math, three. Okay, they can't. Let's move on.
2: So, like Mark already said, there's the area majority. Whoever has the most is going to get a point for every resource that's in that entire thing, which can be significant. Second place will get how many they have in that particular area, and then there's these end game cards that you're going to acquire by building on top of high numbers. Yes, you, so you have to
1: work for it, and, and it's, it's under your control. A, and it's a very
2: no, well not completely under your control because you you get to enter that card into the system, but anyone could
1: it's more under your control than a game that just has end game goals set up, uh, put, laid out during setup that's what i mean it's
2: saying. true yeah. so you're building over a large card and you get and you're going to put that card in your tableau
1: you can a have large... the card in your hand during the draft yes. and decide whether it's worth the effort for you that's, just, what, that's all that i'm going to
2: get just about. so so the higher cards give you in-game scoring it'll be like uh, for every black to- for every uh, t- one of your tokens you have out on blue tiles or right. all sorts of different variants we're going to get you more points and they they double up on each other so you could have three or four that
1: get you the same score for the same thing. Interesting stuff going on there. And despite how pleasing Ginkopolis is, and despite how good I think the iconography is, because it's consistent, uh, that actually is one of the areas where it leads to to a fair degree of disappointment and confusion. Uh, You really have to stress to people, look, parse the end game bonus cards very, very, very carefully. Because, for example, you might assume that just because it's a red card, it benefits you from building on red buildings. Generally, no. Very often there's cross-pollination, and you have to look at the iconography very carefully not to get the big surprise during end-game scoring because that can be a source of disappointment.
2: Yeah, and I like how quick it plays because once people start to understand it, they usually just want to play again immediately, and it, and it moves along so quickly quickly. That, well, it, it's, simu- that's not a problem.
1: it's simultaneous play. You only execute things in order. And again, the genius of the card system is that you can have it be simultaneous play because there's no possibility of two players trying to build in the same place at the same time. Again, that may not make sense conceptually. You don't have to understand it because the game works. <laughs> and so everyone just drafts their card, and if they're building a tile, they p- play the card on top of the tile. Otherwise, they're just playing the card for triggering some, some set of abilities, and there you go, And and in my experience, it just moves along in a very, very rapid clip. Yeah, now that you say that, because we didn't do that when we played.
2: Oh, you played sequentially? Yes, we played sequentially. And then as soon as you said that, it went, uh, you're right. We could have just <laughs> done our thing. Yep, yep, yep. Yes. Because <laughs> once you put it down, because everyone, like Mark said, we didn't really explain it. Everyone puts down the card they're going to play, if it's just a card or a card with the with a tile, both face down. So you're not sure. So like you said, as soon as you, Flip them up, then there's no... Yep, that's it.
1: That's it. You're yep. right. <laughs> Ginkopolis. <laughs> so, in short, uh, this by far is my favorite design by Xavier Kajos. In the point of fact, after I played Ginkopolis, I then went back to Carson City thinking, I must have missed something. My, my But the the thing is, this is, I think, by far his lightest big box design. You know, it's much simpler than Trois, much simpler than Black Angel, much simpler than Carson City, and much simpler than Carnegie. I wish he would go back to this design space again, because I think it's really his most engaging design. It's my favorite of his. You probably prefer Carnegie. That's fine. But there really is a kind of a magic in his relatively simple design that is built on top of a surprisingly clever card cycling system underneath it. And it's got this effortless marriage of multiple... Different design uh, uh, elements. Like, I make fun of endless winter Paleo-Americans, and you really enjoy it, and that's fine, but you have to admit that Paleo-Americans doesn't hang together half so well as Ginkopolis does. Oh, not even a question. And so I wish wish you would return to this kind of design room at this kind of design space, because it is... The, f- the field is drowning in Euro games that just have a little bit of every different element under the sun, but I-, I think that Kikopolis is possibly the best at integrating them all in an approachable way. It's a thoroughly engaging game that that is very quick and has lots of quality decision-making and lots of developments and, and-, and uh, lots of interesting tension. And uh, I, I've, I've a, this is a game that has gone in and out of my collection two or three different times by now. Because every time, you know, there's someone who really, really wants it and it has been very painfully out of print. So I give it away and then I want it back again. And that's just a tribute to how, how much it's stuck in my mind over the course of the past ten years.
2: We don't have to worry. It's, we
1: have it again. So we're good. Sweet. That is Gingopolis. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us and we'll get back to you if we can. We appreciate you having decided to spend the time with us and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.
0: Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind.